You're listening to Situational Significance, a co-production of the PSU Vanguard and KPSU, Portland's college radio, streaming worldwide 24-7 at kpsu.org. So today in the booth with me, I have our contributor, Nick Gatlin. Say hi, Nick. Hi. So we're just going to do the same thing we did a couple weeks ago and go through the news. So, Nick, why don't you start us off with our first story, which um, is obviously coronavirus. Yeah, so northern Italy is now quarantining 16 million people um, after the outbreak of coronavirus there. Uh, they're quarantining people in Lombardy and 11 other provinces in the north and east, and they're essentially canceling all public events, um, any public facilities like gyms, pools, museums, ski resorts, etc. And it's pretty draconian right now, but, you know, they, they have a strong response to the virus. Um, they're also applying to Milan and Venice, and anyone who enters or tries to leave will be fined. Yeah, I've seen that um, you can get really good airline rates from New York to Italy right now. Yeah, I saw a couple round-trip flights from the U.S. to Rome for like 200 Yeah, like bucks. 200 or 300 yeah. Um, now is a great time to travel abroad if you have an especially hardy immune system and don't mind being yeah, honestly, quarantined in Italy for like a month. Yeah, you could probably see the Sistine Chapel like just empty. Oh, my that God. That would be nice. You're so right. Or like the Louvre. The Louvre was shut down for like a week. I bet there's no lines at all. Yeah, I don't think... Anywhere in Europe right now, you're probably safe to go, you know. It's going to be so nice when um, coronavirus really hits hard in Oregon and I can just wander downtown completely empty. Really looking forward to that. (laughs) Yeah, but that's our next story. You can't get ahead. Okay. Yeah, my bad. Um, So let's keep going through the list. Uh, So migrants say Greek forces stripped them and sent them back to Turkey in their underwear. Uh, So this is a lot less lighthearted than the coronavirus. Yeah, so uh, there's just been this kind of tension in Europe as a whole, but some countries like Greece have been very reluctant and, um, I don't know, kind of upset at, at migrants coming in from northern Africa and, and the Middle East. And this is just another incident of that. Uh, you know, Turkish, uh, Turkish migrants coming to the border, being detained by Greek security forces, stripped of all their belongings and their clothes and things like that. It's, it's just kind of another escalation of, of how a lot of European countries are uh, pushing back. I don't think we have any information on that right now, but I would be really interested to see how these two stories are interacting and how um, the coronavirus is infecting overall impressions of Turkish immigrants and other, you know, Middle East region immigrants in Europe. Yeah, I mean, we've already seen a lot of anti-Chinese and anti-Asian stigma around it, so it would be interesting to see if, you know, now that Iran has one of the highest rates, maybe there will be more... um, anti-Arab or anti-Middle East tensions. Yeah, I mean, racism doesn't have to make sense. It might just happen. Yeah. All right. um, Next story, Super Tuesday, which was at this point about a week ago. Yeah, so... So On the last episode of the podcast, we, um, uh, we said information that's now just not 
uh, the narrative is completely changed in the space of those two weeks. So why don't you tell me what the narrative is right now? Uh, I feel like I have whiplash, honestly. Yeah. Um, so prior to Super Tuesday, it was kind of conventional wisdom that Bernie was the overwhelming favorite to win the nomination. And, and then Super Tuesday happened, and wow. Um, every other moderate dropped out of the race and endorsed Joe Biden before Super Tuesday, mm-hmm. except Bloomberg, I guess. Well, but then he did it like a day later. Yeah, and Joe Biden won. I, that's the best way to put it. I mean, he won Massachusetts, Minnesota, um, states that were supposed to be good for Sanders and, you know, liberals, but they went for Joe. So um, I want to talk about the way that this is... I mean, clearly he won the night, but I want to talk about how this is mostly a media narrative more so than an actual delegate narrative. Yeah, so... Because it's about a 60 to 70 delegate difference right now, depending on where they're at in the count, right? Yeah, the, the problem is that the delegate count is actually pretty close, and it's, you know, less than 100 gap between Biden and Sanders. But the rest of the calendar is not looking very good for Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, and Super Tuesday was kind of the day he was supposed to lock up the nomination. And mm-hmm. now it's looking like his campaign could be over by Michigan. Mm-hmm. which is uh, tomorrow, March 10th. Yeah, thanks for saying the date. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, that's the official Vanguard prediction. Is Sanders out tomorrow night? Um, I won't say tomorrow night. I think he still has a lot in him, and he's in a better position than he was in 2016, for sure. But uh, the 538 podcast, or you know, their predictions... Um, they, at the time of Super Tuesday, they put Biden's chances of winning at 88% and Sanders at 2%. Mm. And I just checked this morning, and now it's more like 95 for Biden and like 0.02 for Sanders. So it, Michigan is kind of either the final nail in the coffin or the final struggles of a dying campaign. That's... um. Yeah, I mean, it really just can't be overstated how much the how much the entire game changed in the last two weeks. Yeah, I mean, it it was very fast, and I am very sad this week. All right, well, let's shift back to our wacky news story: the coronavirus. Woo! Um, so, uh, tell me about the state of emergency. Oregon just became under yesterday, actually. Yeah. So. Oregon uh, just added, I think, seven positive new cases. We're now up to 14 in the state. Uh, And Kate Brown yesterday, March 9th, no, March 8th, sorry, um, just declared a state of emergency for the state, which really just means, like, state hospitals and and facilities will get more resources, and it's more of a, you know, state of caution. do we know why it's not up until now that the state of emergency was declared? Were they just trying to reduce panic, or is there some logistical reason? Um, 
You know, I'm not really sure why the delay on the official state of emergency. I do know that the uh, Oregon Health Authority and Oregon Department of Education have been worried about shutting down schools and other facilities um, because it would disproportionately harm, you know, low-income and at-risk students. Um, but as to the state of emergency itself, I think maybe they were just waiting to see how bad it would get. And now there's a confirmed case in OHSU and a couple in Washington County and, you know, all yeah. over rural Oregon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's really spread to the whole state. So I think they're more on alert. Yeah, um, a middle schooler in Hillsborough, if I'm correct. I don't think that's on this form, but I saw yesterday a middle schooler in Hillsborough was just um, tested positive. Yeah, so it, it's... And the fact that there are these isolated cases all around the state, I think probably means that there are a lot more people who we yeah. haven't tested, who kind have of been in, spreading it. In every single direction you go from downtown Portland. Yeah, so um, they're, they're trying to have a more measured response. Um, Oregon still isn't as bad as some states like New York. Um, and, you know, they're still recommending just wash your hands, stay home if you're sick, don't spread to other people, like don't shake hands or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I've seen a lot about um, like greeting people by putting your hand on your heart and just like waving at them. Yeah, I mean, there's there there are a lot of like alternate greeting strategies that don't involve human contact, I guess. Um, but they're not they're not recommending anything extreme yet. They're not telling you to self quarantine. They're not saying to distance yourself. They're just recommending to basically treat it like you have a cold. I mean, honestly, I don't care what the health professionals say. I still think a gentle French kiss is the way to greet people in your life. It's mandatory to swap bodily fluids. <laughs> yeah. If you really cared about me, you would spit in my mouth. Okay. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the PSU quarantine so I can stay home for a couple days and read. Yeah, I mean, but we're in the middle of, I mean, finals week is next week, so this is actually really poor timing on the part of the coronavirus. Yeah. Which um, is really the biggest tragedy in all of this. Thanks, scumbag virus. <laughs> So our last story for today is um, the Oregon State Police, Hillsborough, and Clackamas County Sheriffs are all defying ICE subpoenas. And this comes from OPB. Yeah, so uh, in the last week or two, ICE has been sending out subpoenas to Oregon State and local law enforcement uh, asking for information on potential undocumented immigrants who, who have been in the system. And uh, Oregon law enforcement has not been complying with those, and these uh, agencies just this week decided not to. Um, and that's really based on Oregon's sanctuary city law and s more sanctuary state, um, where basically for 30 years, uh, Oregon law enforcement has been prohibited from using money or resources to help federal immigration authorities. I didn't know it went that far back, actually. Yeah, it was past uh, mid-'80s, I think. Mm. It's the the oldest in the country. Um, and so Oregon law enforcement has a long tradition of doing this, essentially, of not, um, not helping and not cooperating with, like, federal immigration. Yeah, so this um, their sanctuary city policy, that's really interesting because that actually predates ICE. Yeah, I think back then it was just INS and customs 
Yeah, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure either. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, ICE has been really escalating across the country with uh, sanctuary cities and sanctuary states trying to, you know, pressure local sheriffs and police departments to comply. And there's just this kind of federal-state animosity Tension, now yeah. around immigration. So, And I... I don't expect that to dissipate anytime soon. Yeah. Well, Nick Gatlin, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll see you in a couple of weeks, hopefully. Yep. <clears throat> so now in the booth with me, I have our contributor, Bela Kurzenhauser. Bela, you are a arts and culture and opinion contributor, and you are a film major, correct? Uh, no, I'm not a film major, actually. Oh, really? I'm a computer science major. Are you serious, dude? Yeah. <laughs> But you like films. I do. I do a lot. Yeah. You're here today to talk about I would, films. Yeah, I would say that I like them a, a bit. Okay. I think I just assumed that, honestly. You probably did. Sorry about that. It's okay. So today you're here to talk about the Portland International Film Festival, which um, we're sort of just at the v- very beginning of, and it stretches through most of the month yeah. of March. Yeah, this is day four, I think. Yeah. It started on Friday. Yeah. So why don't you tell me a little bit about... Um, what we could find on the history of the festival, how long it's been going? Well, the history or the information of the festival isn't like very well documented because it's not it's not a very notable film festival, but this is the 43rd edition, I believe. It was started in 1977. Um, and it seems like it's sort of just a response to having a bigger local film industry in Portland, um, which sort of has a very, very keen indie scene, but doesn't really have much notable production outside of that. You know, Netflix has been moving in here to make a lot more TV shows recently. But, uh, yeah, so the festival is 43 years running, and they had 59 countries in last year, and they've shown over 4,000 films in the uh, festival's history, actually. So it's a very it's a very international film festival, I suppose. It's also um, it's called the International Film Festival, but interestingly, um, a lot of the films we're going to be talking about today are actually very local. Yeah, yeah, very local. So um, why don't we start with First Cow, which is sort of I don't yeah. know, I guess the crown jewel of the festival. Yeah, it is, the, it is the crown jewel. So Kelly Reichardt has been making films for quite a while, and she's been mostly localized to Oregon. Sort of mm-hmm. the sort of uh, the biggest Oregonian filmmaker, I'd say. Yeah, Meek's Cutoff is the film of hers I'm familiar with, but there yeah, are yeah, a handful of others. Yeah, she started. I believe her first one in Oregon was Old Joy, mm-hmm. and then she's, since then she's also made um, uh, Night Moves with Jesse Eisenberg, mm-hmm. and uh, recently Certain Woman, but that wasn't shot in Oregon. So this is sort of her return to Oregon, I suppose. So um, why don't you just sort of loosely describe the plot of this movie to me? Well, it's sort of set in uh, it's set in Oregon in about the 1800s, um, and it's about these two guys who uh, steal milk from the first cow to arrive in Oregon, which is sort of on a rich plantation. And they, they use this milk to make some really good biscuits, and they sell these biscuits to sort of craft a new life in Oregon. And so this um, this is showing, I believe. Um this is showing on the 13th? Which yeah, it's showing on the evening of the 13th. It's the closing weekend centerpiece. Oh, that's the closing weekend, actually? So this is just a two-week festival? Yeah. So I, yeah. S- I kind of overstated it. Ends on, it, it ends on the 15th, so it's, it's much shorter this year, nine days. Mm. So um, the other film that you looked at for this segment was uh, Clementine, so why don't you tell me about that? Yeah, Clementine is another Oregon film. It's actually it's not showing at the festival anymore because it was the opening night. Mm-hmm. It was one of the opening night films. It's directed by... 
Lara Jean Gallagher, and uh, it had a very notable festival run at the end of last year, sort of touring throughout, um, I believe, uh, Telluride it was at. Mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of a uh, queer coming-of-age romance film. Um, I haven't I haven't seen it yet. Um, it was a little bit difficult to to watch, but uh, I've heard some good things about it, and I think it's going to come out here in Oregon later in the spring, early yeah. summer. April, I believe, is what we were told. Yeah, so it's certainly it's certainly one of the more notable ones at the festival, I guess, because it is Oregon-made, uh, sort of local indie. So, and stars stars some notable actor actresses too, I mm -hmm. believe. So. Yeah, it's, it's shot in Florence, Oregon, actually. Oh, so, that's interesting. Yeah, really, really locally. I um, I actually so you watched the screener for First Cow. I actually watched my own screener from the International Film Festival. Oh, really? Yeah, I watched um Frank and Zed. Ooh, that was a good one. Yeah, that was did a good you one too. um did you take a look at that one at all? Yeah, I love that one actually. So, that one was fun. So Frank and Zed was is um a like zombie monster movie um shot entirely with live action puppets. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly gory actually. It is. It's, it's kind of gross. It is, but it's really funny like the oh, way they really they fun. execute that. So, because there's no human characters at all. It's like no. the it's like the Dark Crystal but just very satiric, I guess. I I guess I should have expected this, but there's very little dialogue in the film. It's just like a lot of like groaning and monster Yeah, noises. a lot of grunting. Yeah. So. But um I did like how, like, um, the the Frankenstein and the zombie are like the main characters of the film. Like, they're really the heroes of the film, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and I love their sort of bromance. Yeah, it's really hilarious. Yeah, like, so. um, they're sort of they're created by like this, you know, like evil mm -hmm. god, and then yeah. the god gets killed, and they're just in like a castle, and they just have this really interesting monster bromance story. Yeah, it's like their day-to-day -day life, and then it's yeah. suddenly disrupted by the return of an ancient curse that's been plaguing the nearby kingdom, so... It's it's a really fun film, yeah. definitely. Yeah, filled and with political sabotage and decapitation. Yeah, um... I don't know what the screening schedule for that is actually. I don't I know if that that's one getting a broader release. Too. I don't know if that's getting a broader release in Oregon, though. I don't know if it it's will. a very it's a very like independently made project, so yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, it looks looks very very low budget, I guess. Mm -hmm. The Kickstarter made like twenty thousand dollars, I yeah. think. So, yeah. It's clear though that the the director put a ton of work into it. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of visible passion in it. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't think you could make a film like that without the passion. Oh, absolutely involved. not. Well, Bela, thank you.